The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning and Happy New Year. Uh, I am back from a couple of weeks of much-needed rest and relaxation over the holidays, and unfortunately now, uh, having uh, uh, gotten the flu along with, it sounds like, everybody else in in, uh, the United States, and I am finally over that and able to talk to you again, and so it is a pleasure to be back on the show and looking forward to another wonderful year of conversations with uh, all of you and with uh, phenomenal and wonderful guests, uh, brilliant people in uh, in the museum field with very thoughtful things to say and um, and great achievements to be made. Today we are going to be talking about something that is at the core of many of our uh, m- much of our practice uh, in in education, and that is the field trip. Uh, we ha- there's a lot of information about the importance of field trips. Uh, we know it. Uh, any of us who have ever worked with young people or even adults in any kind of museum, whether it be a history museum or art museum, uh, we we know. Uh, intuitively and we we see it uh, just tremendous changes uh, can be made in uh, simply an hour of being in the museum in uh, sort of a, a formalized way but the challenge has been one convincing others uh, particularly funders or uh, uh, others who are not familiar with museums and uh, you know, there's always that sort of incredulous question, well, how can students, what are they really learning in, you know, an hour, hour and a half? Because, of course, sometimes if you watch them, particularly here in Washington, it looks as if they're more interested in their cell phones and each other than they are about the actual field trip. Well, I was fortunate, so very fortunate, to uh, have had an opportunity this past fall to visit the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Arts in, uh, in uh, Arkansas. 
and have uh, and listen to our guest today, Anne Craybill, uh, who is the Distance Learning Project Manager at Crystal Bridges uh, Museum. And she uh, shared with us uh, just a wonderful uh, research project that she has been involved with that really gets to the heart of the matter and provides uh, uh, data-driven uh, proof uh, that field trips actually do matter. Now, I'm going to let Anne uh, describe in her own words uh, sort of her career trajectory uh, that she's had. But let me say that Anne and I also share a, a love of Maryland. Uh, Anne uh, was was at the Maryland Institute College of Arts. She also has an MA in museum education from the University of Art of the arts and an MS in instructional technology from East Carolina University. Uh, Anne is currently working on her uh, doctorate uh, at the University of Arkansas and I know that you'll agree with me that she is one of the rising stars in our profession. So Anne, thank you so very much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Carol. It's such a pleasure um, to be a part of this program, and thank you so much for the gracious introduction. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so, Anne, as I as I said, I mean, I only gave the just sort of the broadest outline of your academic trajectory, but if you w- could indulge us a little bit and just share with our listeners a little bit about your career trajectory, and of course, I'm always interested in hearing from museum professionals about those pivotal experiences that that have most influenced your career. Sure. Well, I will start um, at the beginning back in Baltimore, Maryland, which, um, you know, I had recently received my Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photography. And um, while I've always been a very creative person, I don't think I ever really felt like I was going to be a professional working artist. My heart was always in education and um, working with communities. And I actually got my first position. It was a part-time position in the Public Programs Department at the Walters Museum of Art. And this is an exceptional um, museum with an incredible collection. But I'll be honest, my exposure to museums had been, you know, going with my family, um, maybe going on a field trip here or there, but I had never really been exposed to museum studies or the field of museum education until that opportunity. And I remember even being asked by um, human resources if I would be working with the docents. And I, I literally didn't even know what that word meant. And so I just sort of glossed over the question, Um, but that experience, being in that department, seeing all that they did with school programs, with public programs, with the community, really opened up a, a career path for me that I had never considered before. And it was from that moment that I decided I would go to graduate school and pursue my master's and after after that, I mean, it was an incredible program at the University of the Arts. I absolutely um, loved that school and how they prepared me. And we all were able to receive um, career placement shortly after graduation. And so my first position was actually at the Norton Museum of Art in Palm Beach, Florida, West Palm Beach, Florida, actually. And I spent the majority of my career um, in Florida working with museums, working um, with community arts organizations. Um, and then I had a, a brief uh, time where I was in North Carolina working at 
the Durham Arts Council as their community um, school director, and that was an exceptional opportunity. It was a way for me to actually um, acquire some knowledge about earned income and, and bringing a nonprofit uh, out of the red and into the black. But I, I realized I always wanted to work with uh, museum collections. And so I was really fortunate to have this opportunity at Crystal Bridges open up where I began as the school and community programs manager and really helped them to develop their field trip program from inception. Fabulous. That, that is, that is fabulous. Uh, thank you so much. You know, I, 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 uh, I do think uh, my, I have I feel like I have similar uh, career, uh, career path in many ways. Uh, my uh, work, of course, started at the Newark Museum, which I think is uh, is a fine, in, incredible institution to get your start. And I, I truly agree with you that the Walters is uh, a tremendous institution and so community minded and education minded that that uh, that. It uh, clearly shows that it can uh, launch a wonderful career. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to sort of dive into the the work that you were doing at, at Crystal Bridges and and uh, how the uh, you know your research project came about and and uh, and and the unique aspects of that project. But before we do, I think it's really important um, for listeners to understand sort of the unique approach that Crystal Bridges takes to field trips, uh, specifically having the Willard and Pat Walker endowment to support field trips. Uh, so. So could you just explain that a little bit more? Sure. So we are incredibly fortunate. We are in a community that is very philanthropic-minded um, and so supportive of this institution and beloved. And we have a, organi- uh, a, a foundation, the Willard and Pat Walker Foundation, that really wanted to make sure that the community and specifically K-12 students had access to the museum into perpetuity so that there would never be any jeopardy of funding. And they provided a $10 million endowment to do this. This $10 million endowment provides 100% reimbursement for transportation costs, 100% reimbursement for substitute teachers, and it provides every student with a sack lunch. So when they arrive, teachers do not have to worry about um, students bringing bag lunch or getting back to schools on time uh, for lunch or having to have the cafeteria make lunch if the students are on free and reduced lunch. And this program is eligible for anybody. So there's absolutely no criteria in terms of geography, in terms of, you know, your school status as either being Title I or a percentage of free and reduced lunch. It is completely 100% barrier-free program. And it's, I mean, I have never worked at an institution that had this kind of um, gift and these kinds of resources to provide the community. And I can say there was such enthusiasm for this program. We have had teachers as far away as the border of Arkansas and Louisiana. And we'll reimburse those buses as long as they're, you know, within the state um, mileage for athletics rate. We will reimburse those buses 100%. So it's been an incredible opportunity for their students. Many of these students that are in very rural communities who have never been to an art museum before, um, many students who are in very high poverty areas who have never been to an art museum before. Um, So it's a a tremendous gift for the uh, entire region, not just the state of Arkansas, but really the region. As we've had students from Oklahoma, we've had students from Missouri come, um, and as I said, as far away as uh, the border of Louisiana. That is 
it is uh, unprecedented, uh, at least in, in my experience. Some listeners may have uh, have other uh, uh examples uh, that they can share with us at some time. But it does seem to me uh, to get at one, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we as museum professionals sort of bemoan is the uh, you know, funding cuts in so many schools that uh, seem to prevent them from taking field trips. And so we, you know, we, we say, well, you know, the, uh, our field trip numbers are going down because a lack of, of funding. And you have just completely removed that barrier uh, from, from the equation. But I'm wondering, have you found that, uh, that there are still other barriers to uh, going going on field trips? Sure, and it, it kind of gets at the heart of what our conversation is going to be. Um, you know, I think I think schools, while there have been cuts in certain areas, I think schools also make choices. And a lot of the choices that they make are to choose a field trip that is perhaps a reward, um, something that's looked at as recreational. And so perhaps, you know, after state testing, if their school has done really well on state testing or just as a carrot for the students, they may take them to Chuck E. Cheese or to an amusement park or something like that. And, you know, I think there's a, a psychological barrier uh, with, or a perceptual barrier, really, with administration where they don't perhaps understand the value of coming to some sort of a place like an art museum or a science center, an educational opportunity. Instead, it's seen as, um, you know, what really could happen in a one or two hour experience that would be worth taking the student out for perhaps, you know, at least half, if not the full day of school and taking away from that seat time. So I think that was really, um, you know, uh, a huge motivation for why we wanted to conduct this research so that we really could advocate for, okay, hey, we have the money, we have all of the opportunity for you, but really it's, it's the understanding the value in why this is important regardless of the financial barriers. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, yeah. At the beginning of the show, I was talking about and, and frankly thinking primarily about uh, using this research to convince uh, funders in the community how important field trips are. But uh, yes, of course, even uh, principals and teachers, there's no reason why they would would uh, inherently know uh, about the importance of, of uh, museum field trips. It isn't something that they, they get in either pre-service or oftentimes in-service uh, training. So yes, of course, uh, I can appreciate why you would uh, want to to embark on a study uh, that uh, that could actually show uh, r- concrete proof beyond just anecdotal evidence? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is something that uh, very early on in my career uh, I encountered. We had funds; um, they were they were designated funds, mostly for higher poverty uh, schools. But we had funds for transportation. We, you know, open arms wanted to welcome these students to the museum. But I was not able to effectively communicate to administrators why this really mattered other than anecdotal. And that just wasn't enough to move the needle with them. Um, and this was at a time, you know, when, when I started my career, it was right when the No Child Left Behind Act came into play. And um, in Florida in particular, the accountability was just through the roof. And so if it did not relate to um, standardized 
standardized testing, it was probably not going to happen. Uh, and so I, I really felt, um, I think through my whole career, that we just we needed to have more quantitative evidence about what really happens on a field trip and why these matter beyond um, you know reading and, and math outcomes on a standardized achievement test. Very well put. Uh, and I think what we're going to do now, we uh, are going to take our, our first break a little bit early because I want to now uh, give you an opportunity to get into the, uh, uh, you know, the, the details of, of your research project, uh, but I, and I don't want to cut off in the middle of that. So we're going to take a little bit of our short break now, and when we come back, Anne is going to share with us the, uh, her research project Uh, and her collaborators and uh, more importantly some of the results so please stay tuned remember you can contact me anytime at carol.bossard at verizon.net or my uh, my twitter name is at muse right please let me know uh, what you think about the show and what projects and topics we should be uh, talking about in the future that are are of interest and concern to you Uh, so we will be back in a moment this is carol bossard for museum life the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com conservation starts with us learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to our wild world with host ellie weiss Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel make our world a better place but not sure where to start tune into better worldians radio with the creators of the social game on facebook called a better world join hosts ray mary sue and gregory hansel who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways they'll speak to experts authors volunteers and everyday people who are changing the world daily Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. 
Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I am here today with Anne Craybill, and we are talking about uh, the r- work that she's been doing at Crystal Bridges Museum of Art in Ben. Bentonville, Arkansas, and I just want to put a plug in for the museum. If you have never been to Arkansas, which I admit I had never been to that part of the country, or if you've never been to Crystal Bridges, make make time to go. It is a beautiful institution doing some very, very interesting things, and it is well worth your time to visit, and it's just plain fun. So, uh, so with that, Anne, uh, right before break, I, uh, we cut a little early because I wanted to give you enough time to share with us now, um, you know, so we've talked about the impetus for your research study, but, you know, sort of what the study was about, who your collaborators uh, uh, have been, and and what makes this uh, project really unique, I think, in uh, the muse- in um, museum uh, uh, studies research. Sure. Um, so, you know, arriving in Arkansas, I came here nine months before the museum opened. Actually, my first day, there was a baby shower for the museum. So the entire staff was celebrating the fact that we, you know, we're all about to go on this journey where literally we're, you know, we're sort of giving birth to this institution. Um, and Bentonville is a community that um, uh, we have a university just south of us. Um, we have many, many corporations here, but we had never had a museum of this size before. And the closest um, really was Tulsa, so two hours away to go to either the Gilcrease or the Philbrook. Um, and then Little Rock, there's the Arkansas Art Center, and that's three and a half hours away. So, you know, here I am and working um, with this incredible team on this incredible project. I've been given this gift of an endowment to create a field trip program. And so as I was thinking about, you know, what our field trips would look like and, you know, how I would engage the community, um, I started to talk with teachers and, and there was, you know, as should be tremendous excitement about this program um, to the point where I knew we were, we were going to go over capacity. We just weren't going to have um, the ability to accommodate everybody who was interested initially. And at the same time that that was happening, in the back of my mind, I, you know, I was going back to that question that happened very early on in my career. How can I convince administrators that this really matters? Because We've got this incredible gift, but what happens when Crystal Bridges is 10 years old, 20 years old, 50 years old, and is not necessarily as novel in the community, is much more of a staple, an anchor in the community, but perhaps because of that, administrators no longer see, um, you know, the, the, the shiny new uh, opportunity, and they take it for granted, and I just didn't want that to happen, um, and so I approached the University of Arkansas the um, Department of Education Reform, Jay Green, who heads that department, and um, uh, research associate Brian Casita, and at the time, uh, doctoral student Dan Bowen, who's now actually a postdoc at Rice University. And, you know, Jay admits that when he first uh, heard from me, he was sort of you know, skeptical. He wasn't really sure that he wanted to take this project on. He thought perhaps we were just looking for an opportunity for somebody to to validate their program. Um, But after we started talking a little bit, he realized because I had this huge community interest in coming, 
that we had the opportunity to do a random assignment evaluation, which is where you, you really ration or you lottery who is going to be able to come to the museum right away and who would have to have delayed treatment. And so because of this research design, we were really able to get at um, some more causal questions that other research designs have not been able to. And it was, it was really just recognizing that this was a once-in-a-lifetime a sort of opportunity. Museums don't normally open in a place where there have never been museums before. Um, generally, they're in urban centers where there have been museums. So we, we sort of had a... Um, a virgin audience, if you will, you know, people who had never really been exposed, at least in the K-12 system, to coming uh, on an art museum field trip. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, So you have this unique audience. Now, what do you mean by random assignment? Sure. So um, in education policy, uh, generally what is considered the quote-unquote gold standard is a, a random assignment evaluation. And this would be similar to what you might find in the medical field. And it's very hard to pull off um, in the real world because the real world's, you know, very messy and, and usually you're not able to do this. But we did have this opportunity where we were able to match into pairs uh, grade levels. So we looked at, you know, schools that... Um, maybe the third grade and the fourth grade applied, and we would match them into pairs, and then we would randomly assign who got to come right away and who did, uh, had to wait, basically, to, to take their field trip later. And because our sample size was so large, um, we had over 10,000 students, because of this, on average, the treatment group and the tr- control group should be the same. And so when we did the, uh, or, and I should say when Jay, this was, this was really, I was a practitioner and he was the researcher. When um, Jay designed the study, he um, had the students come on the field trip here and the control group was still at their school. And then he went out into the field and he did a survey about, on average, three to eight weeks after the field trip had happened. And then the treatment group, uh, or I'm sorry, the control group did not come into the, to the museum until after that survey was complete. So they had been, in effect, unexposed to the museum. Interesting. Uh, that, that is uh, a novel uh, and rare op- opportunity uh, to do that, that kind of uh, controlled group, uh, have, a, have the control group um, that truly had never been to that museum before. Um, so what, um, maybe before we go into the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the tool that Jay used to sort of, you know, w- what he was assessing. I think it would be helpful to understand what was the field trip experience like for those students who went to the museum. I mean, what did they see? How how were they, um, you know, how were they taught? Who taught them? That kind of, of just, just to give us a, a flavor for the experience. Sure, sure. Um, you know, we, we can't really prove this because we didn't, we did not do two different different types of treatment, say, just students coming to the museum independently versus some sort of a guided um, field trip. But I know, I mean, as a practitioner, that the program was definitely um, (laughs) responsible for producing these outcomes. We have a pretty structured program where students arrive before the museum is open. So this is incredible because, you know, we have been so busy with opening that to tour a group is impossible. The galleries are just packed. Um, It's difficult to hear. 
and we end up, you know, blocking spaces from our visitors or visitors just, you know, unaware stand in front of the students. And so we tour the galleries completely empty. They, are, they belong to the students and we sort of let them know that this is a, a VIP kind of tour. They are very, very fortunate to be in there before we are open. Um, Every student experiences the same work of art. So just going through some of the logistics, let's say we have a school bus that arrives and we've got two classes, approximately 60 students. We divide those students into four smaller groups and they are guided by a paid museum educator who's gone through a pretty rigorous training program. And they go to about four different stops within the art museum, so four different art artworks in the art museum. And we, we like to do, um, you know, the dialogical model, which is uh, based on Rika Burnham and Elliot Kaiki's teachings about how to basically have a conversation in front of a work of art, how to allow students con- to contribute their own ideas and their own meaning, and to layer in um, contextual information to support or either redirect some of their findings. And then we also like to have really um, great age-appropriate activities for them to do. So, for instance, on one of our um, younger tours, which was me and my museum, we would have students learning about balance and fulcrum by creating an actual mobile in front of one of Alexander Calder's mobiles, for instance. Um, For, you know, uh, fifth grade students, we would have a sensory poem. So they might be looking at a um, Thomas Hart Benton artwork, and they would actually have to imagine what the character in the painting would be smelling, what they would be feeling, uh, what they, they would be seeing. And so they really had to put themselves in there and engage their senses in a way that um, probably wouldn't happen just through conversation alone. And so we really like to say that our our tours are very much student-driven, but that the educator is just as significant a contributor in providing some of that contextual um, and informational knowledge to the students. There are some um, approaches that do not do that, such as visual thinking strategies, and that's a great way to engage with a work of art, but we do really firmly believe in, in providing some information about what it is that the students are noticing. And typically you'll find students, they, they notice, you know, oftentimes very similar things. I mean, this, artists are purposeful in, in the symbols and the things that they place in paintings so that viewers do take notice of them um, and discuss them. So, you know, for instance, in uh, Norman Rockwell's Rosie the Riveter, oftentimes um, the students will notice that her foot is stamping on a, a book of Mein Kampf. And, you know, we're able to talk about that and acknowledge what a swastika means in a way that uh, we wouldn't be able to do in using a, a methodology like visual thinking strategies. That's very interesting. And I just want to underscore, and it was actually something you and I were talking about be, uh, before the show started, that, that the, the approach you use uh, in the vernacular of the science world, we would call that hands-on, minds-on. Uh, and so it just seems to me that there, there, uh, there are some real interesting uh, parallels between uh, how you're you're teaching in uh, in an art museum and the same kind of teaching models that are used in uh, science centers and and also uh, many history museums as well so I I think that uh, to me much of your your research is applicable beyond uh, just uh, an art museum uh, uh, field trip I completely agree. And, you know, I actually led a um, teacher workshop once that was 
about the intersection between art and science. And when you're looking at a work of art, you are really, you know, taking the scientific approach. You're, you're, you're observing, you're formulating a hypothesis, you're making conclusions. Um, it's very much the scientific method. Uh, Yes, yes, that's that's great. Um, I could go off on that tangent, but I'm not going to. <laughs> right. uh, not not today. We'll have you back on the show, and and actually, I'm just thinking of an absolutely wonderful group of people we could put together for that art science nexus talk. But that will be another show. What I want to do now is give you an opportunity to share with us. Uh, so, what were the what were the results? Well, one, I guess, let's step back a minute. How, uh, how, what was the tool that Jay used to then uh, measure um, the, you know, both the students who who went to the museum experience, went to the museum, and those that didn't? I mean, you a questionnaire, or what did the students do? Sure. So. We, um, Jay and, and his team actually shadowed some of our pilot groups. We were sort of testing our tours and just testing all of the logistics. And so they got an opportunity to actually see um, the tours in action before they developed the surveys. And the survey instrument measured a couple of different things. Um, and I will back up a little bit and say that we started the study in March of 2012 and um, finished it through that school year. And then we had another cohort, which would have been the next school year. So the study was really kind of done in two separate um, components, two separate groupings. Um, and so the instrument actually changed a little bit for the second grouping, and I'll talk a bit about that. Um, but so, so they were on the tour, and they were um, hearing what the students were coming up with and the information that we were providing. And so one of the first things that we wanted to measure um, was just, do students remember what it is that they learn? Do, do they even retain that information? Um, sometimes people argue that, you know, perhaps you shouldn't give them any information at all because it's just not going to stick. Just let them experience the art. Don't worry about um, uh, providing any sort of context. And so we were interested in measuring uh, just just knowledge retention, so facts about the paintings. And so the team came up with some really great kind of fake, plausible answers to some of the questions um, that they would have experienced on the tour, some of the artworks that they would have experienced on the tour. So that was one um, category that we looked at. Uh, another category, you know, museums often think about the K-12 audience as being future patrons. And, you know, this is why field trips they, they view as so vitally important because if the family doesn't expose them to these opportunities, then that, you know, that student might not ever even know that a museum is a welcoming um, a place that is for them. And so we were interested in, uh, are they um, more um, interested in uh, being cultural consumers? Would they want to come to the art museum more often? And there was two measures for that. One was through a self-report on a survey, but then there was also a behavioral measure where students were provided with a coupon to come back to a special exhibition that did have a charge, and they could bring as many adults with them as they wanted to, and we wanted to see if you came on a field trip, would you be more likely to come back? And, you know, Jay's theory was maybe they wouldn't be because if you were a student in the control group, you might be more excited about coming to the museum because you hadn't been, and if you were a student in the treatment group, well, you had already been. You don't want to come back again. So, you know, that was an interesting um, measure. And then uh, we were interested in um, things like, would they want to be producers of art? Would they want to actually participate in um, art clubs? Following the first um, 
cohort. I'll go into the results in, in one second, but following um, the first research group that March 2012 through the end of the school year, I started to learn a little bit more about non-cognitive outcomes. And so this has been something that's really kind of popular in education research right now, looking at things that can't be measured on standardized tests, you know, from graduation rates and attendance, but also things that are maybe more um, in the field of psychology, things like empathy, things like tolerance. And, you know, I really felt that on a, a field trip experience in front of a work of art, you're bringing together all of these different ideas, and sometimes these ideas are in opposition to your own theory about how the, the world might work. And, and I really do feel like it probably produces more tolerant individuals who are willing to hear um, ideas that are in opposition to their own. Um, and I also felt that, you know, if you are learning about history through a work of art, perhaps you have more empathy and perhaps you have what we call historical empathy. So you're better able to imagine what it would have been like for someone other than, than you in a different time. And so the second group, we really focused on um, those measures in, as opposed to the knowledge outcome measures. Um, oh, that's, that is, uh, a, I found that one of the more fascinating areas of the research. But so don't leave us hanging. What were the results? <laughs> Well, so, you know, Jay said, look, what we usually find is in, in education policy is a null result, nothing, nothing, no change. And so he was very skeptical that we would find anything at all. Um, but in knowledge, the kids knocked it out of the park. And that's kind of a given. You think if you, if you come to the museum and you learn about things, um, you should have a higher probability of being able to answer these questions correctly than if you're a student in the control group. But it, it also just goes to show that even eight weeks after a tour, students remembered this information. And they didn't remember it just because, you know, they were going to get tested on it, or they felt like they had to. They remembered it because it was memorable information. You know, this was something that will stick with them. Um, we looked at the uh, cultural consumer, and that they were higher. There was a higher probability that they would want to come back to the museum. We looked at the behavioral measure, and that was a higher probability as well in the treatment group. So more treatment group students came back and brought their families than in the control group, and all of these were statistically significant. Um, there was not an effect in the production of art, and that actually is not that surprising because students weren't engaging in that way. They weren't coming and making art at the museum. They were learning about art. So you were no more likely to want to be in an art club or take a visual arts class if you had come to the museum than if you were in the control group and had not come. Um, and then the, the thing that we thought was, you know, really um, important and interesting were these non-cognitive measures. So if you were a student that came on a field trip to Crystal Bridges, you were, had a higher probability of being more tolerant to ideas, um, and then you also had a higher probability of um, being able to engage in historical empathy. So this was a really transformative experience. And in subgroup analysis, they actually found that students from higher socioeconomic communities and or rural school districts, the gains for them were sometimes two to three times greater. And when I say the gains, these were all significant, but we do want to say that the gains were within the, the you know, realm of reasonable 
you know, outcomes for the intervention. It was just a one-hour tour experience, usually followed by some sort of self-guided opportunity. And so the, the gains were not huge in terms of like two standard deviations or something. It was more like a, a quarter of a standard deviation increase. But what it does show is that there are significant gains um, and, and field trips really do matter. They really do have an impact. That is, thank you. Uh, that is, it's in, not only is it encouraging, but it's great that there's real proof. Uh, I'm going to stop you right uh, there. We're going to have to take our second break. And when we come back, uh, I know you have a lot more to share with us. Uh, I wanted just to mention as well my my dear friend Jamie Bell uh, from the uh, Case Network and InformalScience.org uh, reminded me that there is a tremendous amount of, uh, of research on their evidence wiki about the importance of uh, of field trips. Uh, much of it is, um, you know, a little old, uh, uh, eight to ten years old, but it it is a good uh, basis uh, for uh, for looking at uh, the research that's happened with field trips. And I think that if you look at those studies, you will see how you it will give you even a better context for the uh, work that uh, that that Anne's team has uh, has developed. So I I, uh, I encourage you to look at that. And Anne, could you just share with us if someone is interested in uh, your research study, where could they find it? Um, the easiest place to go is Education Next, and you can actually just type into Google um, Crystal Bridges Study Education Next, and it will pop right up. Um, and then we will also have it available within um, our website. Wonderful. Great. Okay, uh, as promised, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, more with Ann Craybill in this very interesting research. This, uh, You are listening to Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert. We'll be back in a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing 
Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert, and we're here today. I'm talking with Ann Craybill about uh, her research that she completed at uh, Crystal Bridges Museum of Art about the uh, true impact of a uh, of a field trip uh, to the art museum. And Ann, while we were on break, you shared with me a fascinating uh, sort of mini story about how this very important research project almost never didn't happen. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, a really interesting case for um, informal learning to really advocate for why we need very rigorous research. Uh, funders, I think, really are interested in funding programs. So if, if you have a funder on board, um, you know, they already believe in the power of either a field trip or informal learning or, you know, arts or science-based work, and they're not necessarily interested in, in funding research that proves the value because they already believe in it. They already, they already you know, think they understand the value of it. Um, so I think, you know, even within uh, internally, um, trying to ensure with our um, colleagues that this, this was really, really important was challenging because... To them, you know, they already understood the value of uh, field trips. So I think um, as, you know, a field, we really do have to advocate and make the case to funders, to foundations, um, to strengthen and improve, you know, their, their support for this kind of work. And our willingness to do uh, this kind of rigorous uh, research and and uh, communicate that we too want to make data driven decisions, which I think uh, unfortunately we haven't done a good job in our field, and most people don't even equate museums with any kind of scientific research or methodology. So, so I do hope and uh, and believe that uh, this research project, along with a handful of others, can really uh, start start making the case uh, for for this effort. Um, and I want to shift gears a little bit and give you time to talk about sort of your next steps. You were telling me that you have a new project on the horizon that's, that probably was influenced by, uh, by your research experience. So would you like to uh, just sh- in, uh, share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you just mentioned talking about making data-driven decisions, and definitely some of the findings from this research really informed how we wanted to grow um, school programs. So I am no longer uh, managing the school programs. My colleague, the very talented Zev Zlovsberg, is uh, managing that program and growing that program so we can reach more students. 
And I have now directed my efforts and my energies towards uh, distance learning initiatives. Because we found that the gains for students in rural communities um, were often two to three times larger, and given where our institution is, we really felt like we wanted to create a program that could expand arts access to all, but with an emphasis on uh, students in rural districts. Um, Arkansas has lots of really small districts. Um, we have some districts that have been consolidated. We have some students that have to sit on a bus for you know an hour on end just to get to school. Um, and their schools are very small. I visited some of these schools and you know they'll be a complete K through 12 uh, school and you know the class might be as small as seven. So seven students in the 10th grade, um, you know, very close-knit communities. But because of this, oftentimes they just don't have access to um, different kinds of elective courses that students in larger high schools might have. And so we really wanted to develop a way um, to have reach, but also not just putting our resources out there online. We wanted to have some sort of, you know, stake in their educational uh, experience. And so we've developed an 18-week, four-credit course. It's called Museum Mashup, American Identity Through the Arts. And it's a place for students to really explore um, American identity through the lens of the visual arts. And we sort of started with a backwards approach. We, one of my um, uh, colleagues was helping me with this project, uh, Emily Rodriguez, and she said, you know, I just finished my master's in history and I, I hated it because we always ran out of time for all the contemporary stuff. And right there, a light bulb went off and we said, we need to take a backwards approach and start with the contemporary stuff and work our way. So start with what's relevant, what they know today, and, and see how that ties back through history. So our big question is, how did we get here? And then each week, they explore works of art as they might relate to somehow shaping and informing American identity. And they use really great tools that are online um, to do this. We have a tool called VoiceThread, where they're able to have conversations in the cloud looking at um, a, a work of art and build off of each other's ideas. Um, we have traditional sort of discussion thread tools. Um, and then we have just, it, it's a beautifully designed um, uh, course for them to progress through. Another really exciting element is uh, working with uh, Professor David Charles Frederick at the University of Arkansas, he created an actual 3D rendering of one of our galleries, which is, I don't know if you're familiar or if you remember, Carol, it's the 20th Century Bridge, where, mm. it, yeah, there's the two, yeah. it, it overlooks the whole grounds, but then there's two kind of gallery boxes within. So he's created a complete virtual rendering, including the curved beam ceilings, so we have these beautifully, um, a suspension roof with beautiful curved beam ceilings. And the students, their project actually culminates with them curating their own exhibition about um, American identity through a databank of um, works from our collection. So they're learning about what it's like to be a curator. They're watching videos by um, our curators. They're watching videos by our graphic designers coming up with, you know, the graphic identity for an exhibition, writing the labels. Um, so this has been an incredible project to work on. It just launched uh, last week. We have a sort of pilot group of um, students that are in the course from all corners of the state. And, you know, we're learning as we go. So we're making changes as we go um, to some of the instructional design and some of the ways that the students engage. Um, but eventually, we want to be able to make this course available to any teacher who would want to teach it in the nation. 
well that was that was going to be my my uh, my next question uh, I've had uh, several people uh, on on the show uh, who are focusing on uh, technology and in museums and of course one of the uh, uh, continual themes is that technology applied well allows museums to literally reach the world or in your case the nation and uh, that that uh, it changes the entire discussion about who your audience is and who your community is but then but for but essentially with a small a relatively small amount of effort you can then, reach uh, a, a very large group. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for us, we, we really, we, there's wonderful models out there. Um, for instance, like Khan Academy, great resources. There's wonderful museum-based um, websites with resources. And we certainly want to um, do all of those as well. But for us, you know, the, the critical component to learning from works of art is that community that you talked about, and it's, it's very social. And so we really wanted to make sure that this would be a cohort-based course where students are engaging with each other and they're engaging with their teacher. And while it's asynchronous, a student can log on at any time, they're still paced, so they're progressing, you know, week by week together. And, you know, for, for us, it's been right now very small scale, but we feel like if we, can, if we can leverage all of the teachers out there that are teaching online that might want to have access to this kind of really high-quality online course, then we have the potential to just, as you say, scale it up to reach the nation and, um, you know, and the world. I mean, if a teacher in India or China wanted to teach this course, we want to make it readily available to them to be able to do. Um, and, and so I think you have to start small and, and make sure that your product is, is really, um, you know, well done. Um, work through all of the uh, problems that you might have with willing partners. Our partner in this case is Virtual Arkansas. They are a supplementary online course provider from the Department of Education. And they have been more than willing to give us an instructor, Diana Garrison, who's been incredible in teaching this course, test everything out, um, and, and help us through all of the logistics that we have to go through in terms of course approval and, and all of those kinds of issues that, frankly, in the museum world, I'm just not familiar with. Um, and so this has been, I mean, a really, a, a really great uh, opportunity to work with willing partners to allow us to have scale. And I think that's a key thing for museums to, to understand is um, looking at, you know, who does what really well and partnering with them rather than trying to do everything on our own. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that is, uh, uh, I, I couldn't have said it better, and I do think that that is something that we, we tend to forget, uh, and, and it, sh- it does seem as if you're going, you're going, I think we also forget how much time these things take. Uh, I'm assuming, you, as you said, you're, you're going through the pilot now. Uh, I'm assuming it'll take uh, uh, at least a couple of seasons for you to get this uh, where you want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I even foresee that when we do, um, you know, scale this and, and distribute it to anyone who uh, wants to be able to teach this course, you know, w- depending on um, technical issues that they might have or just things that we haven't considered, there'll, there'll always be um, changes. So we're always going to have to be able to provide support rather than just put these resources out there. Um, but it's, I think, just a, a really exciting opportunity. And museums are really poised to be able to have um, a more... Um, 
you know, central role in K-12 education because of online learning and technology. Um, there's policies in place that are, that are making this happen as well. So, for instance, Arkansas is one of six states that actually has a requirement that students have to take an online course for graduation. And so, you know, looking at those kinds of policy triggers and seeing how we might um, fill that need, you know, would a student want to take an online algebra class or museum class, you know, I, I think, I would hope, they would be more interested in the museum course. Um, and again, providing these opportunities that just wouldn't have existed in either a rural community or even a um, suburban community with a, a large uh, art department. Yes, and, and as you said as, as well, we know unfortunately that um, there are many school systems that have had to cut their, their arts education, and, uh, and this might provide a way for uh, school systems and even PTAs and others to get that, uh, that information, that, those, that kind of education uh, back into the classroom uh, in, in uh, a reasonable way. Well, Anne, this has been a true pleasure for me to get to know you a little bit better and to hear about this wonderful research project. I wish you the best of luck, and I, I hope that you'll keep us apprised of how things are going with your distance learning class and also your own doctoral work. As I said, I think that this is, uh, uh, your, you, I just see even grander things for you in the coming years. So uh, thank you for, for putting your talents uh, and keeping your talents in the museum community. Thank you for having me and uh, you know, allowing me to share uh, all of the wonderful things that I think Crystal Bridges is doing for um, really the world. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. And again, if you haven't been, go to Bentonville. Uh, This has been a wonderful uh, program this week. We will be back next week uh, with with another group of great guests. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>